The reading for today is from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Ben. And thank you, Kelly, for uh, taking the time to do that. All three services today. Good morning, Redemption. How y'all doing? I know that's always risky to ask, but I ask it anyway. Um, Good to see you. Uh, If you're new here, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church Arcadia, although uh, yet another employee from Phoenix Children's Hospital. Um, I'm beginning to think that the elders might want to change the name of our church to Redemption Church Phoenix Children's Hospital. That might be, I don't know, a little bit more accurate. Um, If if you would like, uh, just open to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That's where we're going to be pretty much camped out. I'm going to look at a couple of other verses uh, today as well, but they'll be on the screen. But you you can just camp on these two very important verses. Uh, We are going through the book of Acts. That's what we've decided to do with the um, with the majority of 2017, but uh, today is what Luke Simmons, who leads our preaching collective at Redemption Church, uh, calls a one-off. He schedules a one-off every now and then so that we can um, do something else, or maybe it's a holiday weekend and a lot of people are up north, and so we're doing a one-off today, and uh, I decided that uh, we might look at Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2. Before we do that, though, I just want to pray. I want to pray Uh, that the Spirit would fill us, that the Spirit would open our minds and our hearts. Uh, And also, I want to pray for what's going on down in Texas, and in particular Houston, with the the hurricane and all the flooding and everything going down there. I know that um, Cody's wife, Lauren, has a tremendous amount of family down in Houston. Uh, I I have a friend, a very good friend of mine, uh, Heather McCutcheon, who is is down there. Her and her family have been driven out of their house. I'm sure many of you have friends in Texas as well. Uh, it's, it's really devastating. I used to live in Houston. I lived in Houston right after Alicia went through there in 1984. And I understand what it's like down there when there's really, really bad weather. So let, let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we do pray um, for your uh, mercy and your grace, which you, you give so lavishly. Uh, you love us so much. And yet we live in a in a world that's fallen and corrupted by sin, including the creation. And we we know that uh, that offers just grave challenges. And so, God, we have challenges even in this room um, in terms of opening our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word. Uh, Even those of us who uh, say that we are uh, saved by Jesus and followers of Jesus, um, when we study your word, that flesh still pushes back that it still wars with the spirit in us. And so I pray today that our hearts and our minds would be open to your word uh, and that you would move me out of the way and let your word and your gospel be heard clearly this morning. Uh, But also, uh, God, for what's going on down in Texas and Louisiana, in particular Houston, with just the devastation that is happening there, we pray for the people there, we pray for... Uh, all of the relief efforts and the rescue efforts. Um, We pray that, oh my goodness, the amount of paperwork that people are going to have to go through and the hassles 
in, in the wake of this with the, the insurance and the government and everything. It's going to be a challenge. And so we just pray for them. We pray for patience and perseverance in the midst of that. And God, we just pray that um, although this is a, a terrible disaster and great devastation, that people would see you even in the midst of this. That's our prayer. We pray that you'd bless us, but God, more important, we pray that you would be glorified. Uh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we're getting toward the end. Um, we actually are going to have about seven weeks between Acts and Advent, which we're going to fill with uh, a, a little bit of a walk through the book of Proverbs. And so if you've been around Arcadia um, at all this, this summer and this fall, you know that also on Wednesday nights we're looking at Ecclesiastes, and then after Ecclesiastes we're going to do the Song of Solomon. So it's kind of like the fall of Solomon or the fall of wisdom at, at, at Arcadia, so we like that. Uh, but we have been going through the book of Acts, and with essentially the last 40% of the book of Acts focusing on Paul's missionary journeys and, and his ministry, um, I thought it would be uh, apropos because we've been seeing his theology in action if we also look at, at one of the core tenets of his theology in, in probably uh, his, what is certainly his most recognizable letter, but also if you were to rate Paul's letters in the New Testament, people would say Romans is probably the best and the most important. I had a, uh, I had a Bible professor uh, at Grand Canyon University years ago named Mike Baird, Dr. Mike Baird. Some of you might even know him. He's kind of a legend in, in, in Phoenix. And um, he actually, here you go. Uh, this is how smart Dr. Baird is. He wrote a textbook on biblical Greek. So if you want to learn biblical Greek, you can buy his textbook and be speaking biblical Greek within six months. That's his guarantee. I'm kidding about that, but uh, at one point in one of his classes, he declared that he believes that Romans, the book of Romans, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Romans, is the single greatest piece of literature ever produced in the history of the world. Now, he's also deeply... Uh, knowledgeable about the classics, you start to think about everything that's been written. That is high praise coming from somebody who's read even all of the classics. Um, and, and what I'm trying to get at today is this idea that we'll get to toward the end, but we're going to spend some time setting it up, this idea of what uh, a scholar, a Harvard scholar named Gordon Alport calls intrinsic faith. So the big idea is what is intrinsic faith? That's what uh, we're going to work through. Um, and, and I would just acknowledge up front that we all struggle with this, this word or this concept, faith, I think. Um, uh, we talk about it ad nauseum in the church, faith, faith, faith. It's, it's incredibly important. And, and yet when we're asked to describe it or to define it, it can be very difficult to describe it or define it in concrete terms. It's ethereal, it's, it's esoteric, it's quite abstract. Um, and, and, and I think that Paul starts us on a good journey in these two verses uh, to get at what faith really means as it is applied to our lives. The faith that God has put into our hearts through the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus crucified and risen, saved, uh, saves us from our sins and risen to give us new life. And then that is planted in our hearts, opens our hearts to who God is, fills us with the Holy Spirit. And he says, now here's how you need to live your life. So he starts to get 
at it today. But I would also caution you, this is not just one tutorial on faith and you're going to leave and go, got it, good to go, let's move on. The question of and the quest for faith is something that really demands a lifelong process. Uh, we, we need more than just one passage or one message. We, we need life. Uh, faith is built through humility and experience over time. James even says it this way at the beginning of his little letter in the New Testament. He says, Consider it all joy, beloved, when you encounter trials of various kinds because the testing of your faith is what produces perseverance. And, and that, that, those two verses that James gives us, th those verses are important because he's talking about the building of faith over time as we experience life as it really is. And life is hard. Life is tough. It's difficult, I think, for us to build a lot of faith when things are going really easy and well, when we're comfortable and unchallenged. The reason he says this is because your faith is going to be tested in trial, in tribulation, in challenges, and in suffering, and those experiences are going to help you to understand what genuine faith really is, and it's going to build into you this perseverance, this steadfastness, this maturity. So faith is built through uh, humility and experience over time, and we would suggest that, it, it, that two characteristics that are needed and produced in this faith journey are patience and perseverance. Patience and perseverance. So you heard Ben uh, read Romans 12, 1 and 2 in uh, the uh, English Standard Version. Let me just read it for you in three other uh, versions or translations or paraphrases just to give you some of the uh, depth of, of what Paul is trying to communicate in these two verses. So the Phillips translation goes like this. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my beloved, as an act of intelligent worship, that's interesting, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him, God, your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his, all his demands, and moves you toward the goal of true maturity. That's an amplified translation, but I think it gets at the core of what Paul is trying to do here. Now here's the NIV, which is uh, much more word for word and academic and stiff, but just to give you an idea. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Are you starting to see some of those main things? Living sacrifice? Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Worship is an important part of this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't don't allow the, mold, the, the world to squeeze you into its own mold. But be transformed, that's an important word, by the renewing of your mind. So the mind is a big part of this. How we think. Uh, Philip said intelligent worship and then talked about the mind as well. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. We, I'm always wondering, what is God's will? What's God's will for my life? His good pleasing and perfect will. 
Here's one more, the message. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. This is Eugene Peterson's way of saying, because of the mercies of God, because of the grace of God, because we are uh, filled with and empowered by his love, mercy, and grace, you can do this. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit right into it without even thinking. I love that line. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. You can see these patterns beginning to emerge. So what I want to do is take some time to um, just kind of unpack these two verses Uh, give you some of the backstory and background of what Paul is saying here so that we understand it, and then we're going to press into this idea of intrinsic faith. But along the way, you're going to get some application as well. So Paul begins by saying, I appeal to you, therefore. So this is a turning point in the letter that he writes to the church at Rome. One of the patterns that you can find in, in the way Paul writes his letters to these churches is that he starts with doctrine. He starts with teaching. He starts with the gospel. He explains how we are fallen and we are sinners, that we are, um, we are in the sin of Adam, but then God comes along and through his grace and mercy, he reaches down and through his son Jesus Christ, he saves us through his his mercy and grace, and gives us the faith to be able to be saved. And then at some point in his letter, usually about halfway through or maybe a little bit more than halfway through, he shifts from doctrine, from teaching the doctrine, into here's the application for your life. Here then, if this is true, if all of this is true, if Romans chapters 1 through 11 is all true, then therefore, this is how you're to live your life. It's the, li- the practical life application of the gospel in your life. The, the um, academic term or even the Latin term for this section of, the, of, of Paul's letter would be called praxis. Some of you remember that that was the original name of our church before we merged with East Valley Bible Church and became Redemption Church, this church was called Praxis. So that was really intentional by Justin to call the church Praxis because here's what Justin used to say. He said, theology is not theology until you actually live it. You can have all kinds of theology up in your mind, and that's not a bad thing. But if here you go, here's how Tom Schrader would say it. If you're spiritually constipated and you can't get any of that theology in your mind pushed out and lived out, then you don't have real theology. And that's why this church was originally called Praxis. We wanted to live theology because that's when theology becomes lived. Paul essentially is saying the same thing in these two verses. He's saying, look, I've laid out the clear and compelling case for the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ, for this great gift that God has given us. In fact, let me just read to you Romans um, chapter 8, verse 3, which 
this is like my favorite verse in all of Romans. Here's what it says. Paul says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So what he's saying is he's saying all of us seem to be engaged in some form, whether we're religious or not, we're all engaged in some form of self-salvation, cleaning ourselves up, living by a moral code. And for Jews, of course, it was the Mosaic law. If I just keep the Mosaic law, then, then God will accept me. How easy is it to keep the Mosaic law? How is it? Here you go. How easy is it for any person to even keep their own moral code that they have constructed specifically for themselves so that they can keep it, and then they find out they can't even keep that? So he's saying that what God has done in Christ Jesus by having him come and live, the incarnated God, going to the cross and then being raised from the dead, he did what the law could never do for us. Because Uh, The law is always weakened by the flesh. It's always weakened by our sin. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh and gave us our salvation. I love that. So he says, I've laid out this clear and compelling case for the gospel. That's good news. Jesus did it for us. Don't have to worry about the law so much anymore. So the conclusion to your life should be, obvious. By the grace of God, by the mercy of God, by the love of God, live a life worthy of the calling of the gospel in your life. Whenever Paul exhorts us, his first priority is always to tell us that we can do what he's asking because of the strength and power of God and not us. That's a big deal. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, because of God's grace. He's not saying, I appeal to you then, try harder. I appeal to you then, do better. I appeal to you then, figure it out. He says, I appeal to you then. You know God, and God knows you, and the resurrected Christ is in you. You can do this because of God and his grace. And one of the key ways that we're able to do this is to actually renew our minds. This is why he talks about The renewal of our mind is so important. It's very important. Uh, John Piper says this, What is in the heart is explicitly and profoundly influenced by and connected to what we feed our minds. And you think about the rest of Scripture. You think about, for instance, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 where Paul says, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. It's interesting he goes to the mind there. And then um, later on in Philippians chapter 4, in the same letter, he writes this in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, he lists three things, uh, excuse me, he lists eight things, and then he says, think about these things. And that word there, think, uh, literally means to ponder over and over, to consider consistently, to ruminate on, to chew on. Put these things in your mind, because it's important what is in our minds. And he says, by the mercies of God... Present yourselves as living sacrifices. Because God has given us this great gift of redemption, 
Our lives should be lived as though they belong to him because they do. They do. But I will also argue here, when Paul says, present yourselves as living sacrifices, there's a, just a little bit of snark in what Paul is saying. Think about the Mosaic Law sacrificial system for hundreds and hundreds of years. What kind of sacrifices did they offer? They were dead sacrifices. Paul is saying that what Jesus gives us is the opportunity to offer a living sacrifice. Our lives live for him. Now under grace, we have this new life and we offer this life to God. And admittedly, that's not always easy. We've talked about this before. There's great tension in that. You know, Jesus says things like be in the world but not of the world. That's kind of hard to do a lot of times. It's very difficult to do that. But that is our call by the mercies of God, to be in the world but not of the world, to be a light shining in the world, but not to let that corruption get on us as well. And Paul says we can do this because of God and his power in us. And I've mentioned this before. I've always found that anything in life that's worth doing is going to have at least some measure of tension and challenge in it. But I would also argue that tension's pretty good. Tension is helpful. Uh, if I, I don't know that much about car engines, but I do know that if there isn't the right tension on the belts in the car engines, they don't operate. Your car won't go anywhere. Tension is good for the, uh, the engine of your car. And so tension can also be good for us. Paul says, this is your spiritual worship. I love asking people what their definition of worship is. It's, it, most of the time people will say, uh, it's, the, it's the music part of Sunday of the Sunday service. That's, that's worship. Not quite. Actually, it's a worship service. Everything that we do here, here you go, you are offering yourselves as living sacrifices, listening to me, drone on and on and on. Are you starting to get it now? It's, everything we do here, the prayer, the communion, the music, everything that we do here, but Paul says, no, that's not even it. It's everything. Everything we do, period. It's work. Paul writes in a couple of different places, you're going to be working for somebody else, humanly speaking, but work always as if you're working for God. Work unto God. Do your work for God. Relationships. I believe that's the biggest characteristic of how we are created in the image and likeness of God is that we were created for community and relationship because God is a community. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image and likeness. And so when we're in relationship, we are, we, are, we are imaging God when we are in relationship with each other. It's an act of worship. Recreation, literally, I'm sorry, recreation, literally, it is recreation. God calls us even to, to recreation. If we're always um, expending our tanks and never filling our tanks, we're going to have a breakdown, aren't we? So we need that recreation, recreation to be able to fill our tanks. There's leisure. That's the Sabbath. We're honoring God through the Sabbath, through rest, through education, knowing God. And I know he's like, well, I, I go to ASU. You know what? You can know God even through that. I, I have found the gospel 
in the discipline of communication, and many of you know I find the gospel all the time in pop culture artifacts, in music, in movies, and in story. Education helps us to know God, and, and really anything that we do with our bodies, including cover your ears if you're under 18, sex. Paul David Tripp even goes so far as to say that sex is an act of worship. He created it as long as it's in the confines of biblical marriage. He created that for us. It is actually an, an act of worship. At Redemption, we say it this way. You heard Ben say it earlier. All of life is all for Jesus. And Paul's counsel for how practically to do this is to quit falling prey to the intoxication of cultural wisdom and mores. Quit falling prey to the intoxication. I, and I specifically chose that word intoxication because it is intoxicating. We get sucked into that cultural wisdom and mores so easily. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Instead, allow Jesus, the gospel, and the filling of the Holy Spirit, God's word, the community of faith, to transform your mind. Uh, Michael Gerson, who is, the, uh, who is a journalist with the Washington Post and a Christian, was here on uh, Tuesday, I think it was, Tuesday here doing um, a presentation to a fairly packed house. And one of, these, one of the things that he said, I loved this. He said, listen, I don't think it's too much to ask that a Christian's mind be primarily formed by Christian resources such as the Bible and Christian community and preaching. I don't think it's too much to, the filling of the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's too much for, for the Christian mind to be formed primarily by Christian resources as opposed to primarily by social media, cable news, and talk radio. But how many of us, our minds are being formed by these other things? It's not saying that we jettison those things, but we need to understand how they are forming our minds because, as Piper says, that's what's going to start coming out of our hearts. Take this old mind that was fixated on the flesh of the less, the intoxication of the eyes, and the pride of life. That would be 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And instead of that, move it toward the wisdom of God. Be transformed by God. And that word transformed in there is the Greek word metamorpheo. It literally means metamorphosis. We're going to change. We are going to be transformed. We're going to change. And it's interesting that he's got this emphasis on the mind. Now, listen, Paul writes to the heart, and he talks about the heart, and he says the heart is important. Jesus says the heart is important too, but but there's a, there is a lot of Paul's writing that emphasizes the importance of the development of our minds. And, and of course, this was written 2,000 years ago, more than 2,000 years ago, and now we have uh, some scientific help that helps us to understand the mind, and, and you have Christian psychologists and psychiatrists helping us to put this into perspective. So you've got guys like um, Henry Cloud and John Townsend who have written many books from a Christian perspective. They're PhDs in psychology, but have written many books from a Christian perspective on psychology. And, and one of their things is they say, we don't practice pop psychology. We practice the biblical word, and it just so happens to be really good for the mind. This is how we do our therapy, and they're really good at it. And one of the things that Townsend talks about is how, you know, we have a left brain and a right brain. The left brain is that logical, linear cognitive side, the intelligence 
side, the side that has evidence and facts and constructs arguments, and then we have the right brain, which is our emotional side, our passion, our feeling, kind of our instinct, things like that. And Townsend says, one of the problems with how we talk about left brain, right brain is that we always say, well, I'm a left brain person or I'm a right brain person. And he says, what you're really saying there is because this exists in your life on a continuum. You are not left brain uh, to the exclusion of the right brain. You're not right brain to the exclusion of the left brain. And if you are, that's a problem. You will have a disastrous life if you're excluding either one of these. He says, instead, you kind of exist on a, on a continuum. I would describe myself, Jackie, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm a little bit more left brain than right brain, right? Okay? Some people are, are more right brain than left brain. I, I find them um, delightful in their creativity and, and, and frustrating when I try to argue with them. They don't get my points. And maybe it's just because I don't know how to construct an argument just yet, but if you get my, if you get my drift. Uh, Townsend says reliance on only one, especially at the expense of the other one, is what he would call foolishness. He also says, though, and I agree with him on this, the trend of our culture for the last 20 to 30 years is to, is to tell people to only press into their hearts, their right brain. Just do whatever you feel. Make all of your decisions based on what you feel. If it feels good, do it. Speak to your heart and then do it. I'll tell you, most, if not all, of the worst decisions I've ever made have been when I am in my right brain, when I am in the midst of out-of-control emotion. I've made some of the worst decisions in my life. But I will also tell you that some of the best non-decisions I've ever made have been when things line up logically, but my gut is telling me don't. There have been times, and one of the most frustrating things is when things line up beautifully logically and my gut is telling me don't and I do it anyway and then it's a disaster, that's really frustrating. But do you see the reliance on both? Paul here is trying to help us to develop that mind which couldn't be more timely for our culture today. By the way, this idea that the left brain and the right brain need to work together, do you think that maybe we should be relying on the Holy Spirit for some of this help? If not all of it? Being filled with the Holy Spirit? And that last part, he says, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's all about a topic that is very important to the Holy Spirit and to Paul. It's the wisdom of God. Wisdom as opposed to foolishness. Um, let me read where Paul s spends a little bit more time um, showing the, the difference between wise and fools, foolishness in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 18. Again, Paul is now in the praxis part of the letter to the church at Ephesus, so he's in that practical application part, and he says, look carefully then at how you walk. How you walk is a is an ancient Greek colloquialism for how you live out your life. Look carefully, therefore, at how you live out your life, not as unwise, but as wise. What's a synonym for unwise? Foolishness. Don't be a fool, but rather live as a wise person, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He says we're living in an evil age. That's Paul's way of referring to the pressures of our culture to conform into their way of thinking. 
that, that, that culture needs to be redeemed as well, that culture has the problem of the fallenness of original sin as well. So be very careful. You, you need to have wisdom in order to navigate this culture. Therefore, and then he just flat out says it, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, the wise person is the one who is seeking the will of God, the mind of God, what it is that God wants. That's the wise person. The fool is the one who does not seek God's will, God's mind, the word of God. And then he says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Um, what happened there was Paul was writing along about foolishness and, and, and wisdom, and suddenly he remembered, oh, I forgot to tell you, don't get drunk on wine, that's a problem. And then he I'm kidding, that's not what happened there. A lot of people think that is what happened, though. They don't understand Paul's illustration, his metaphor. Do not get drunk on wine is not literally don't get drunk on wine, but you can get drunk on craft beer, Arcadians. That's not what he's saying, Okay. He's saying, don't get intoxicated by anything other than God. Do not live, and it's not just influence. He says, don't, don't, don't be overwhelmed by culture. Don't, don't worship your work. Don't worship uh, your, your spouse. Don't worship your children. Don't worship your athletic teams. Don't, unless it's the Chicago Blackhawks. Don't worship, don't, don't worship any, don't worship money. Do not be intoxicated by these things. Instead, submit yourself to the filling of the Holy Spirit and be intoxicated by the Holy Spirit. And again, it's not influence because influence implies that you and I still have control. We're just being kind of nudged one way or the other, but rather overwhelmed. We are, we are drowning in the Holy Spirit. We're overwhelmed by the word of God and by his will in our lives. And the only way to know God's will is to know God. And the way we do that is primarily through this word, but also through our communities and through worship experiences. Everything that we do in terms of uh, this ethic of Christianity in our lives. A main Proverbs theme is to compare the fool to the wise person. And the comparison is very simple. The fool is always the one who thinks that he or she knows better. It's, it's the person who's filled with pride. Uh, Proverbs 1, chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom, discernment, understanding, and knowledge in life. The fear of God. In other words, not, not like cowering in the corner fear, but a willingness to humbly submit to him and know who he is and know his mind. And to live out the will of God. Conversely, frustration, destitution, and destruction is what foolishness will lead us to. And we need to remember that wisdom is not necessarily achieved, but it's more received from God. Because it starts with our humility to be able to submit ourselves to that and, and live under that. We, we receive wisdom uh, by, as Jesus says in John 15, abiding in him. We abide in Jesus. Um, it's, it's the idea of submitting to God in all things. Again, uh, Henry Cloud has this great illustration, which I've used many times before. I think it's really helpful. He says, essentially, there are three kinds of people in life, three categories of people. He says, there are wise people, and, and through their research and their uh, 
educated estimates, about 5% of the population would be considered wise by their definition. Their definition of a wise person is somebody who submits to God and his will and changes their life in order to fit under God's will. They adapt to God. And then they say that about 94% of the world, that they're what they, they put into the foolish category. The 94% are the people who want everybody else to change how they live to submit to them, to submit to their will, that it's all about me. And that's foolishness because you're rejecting God and elevating yourself as God. That is foolishness. And then he, they say that there's uh, this other 1%, which they say, unfortunately, they're the ones that you need guns, lawyers, and money for. <laughs> that they, they are so out of control that you're going to need you're going to need help with them, unfortunately. So, back in the 80s, there was this guy named Gordon Alport. He was a Harvard scholar. And, and he loved to do research into faith-based issues and concepts. And um, I, I, would, I would say I don't think he was a Christian. Um, I don't know that he necessarily had any faith other, other than maybe in himself and in Harvard and all of that. But he was a brilliant guy, and he loved to do um, uh, research into faith-based stuff. And, and so one of his biggest research projects was he had heard over and over about this thing known as the 80-20 rule. Anybody ever heard of the 80-20 rule? That in nonprofits, in synagogues, in churches, and uh, places like that, 20% of the people do 80% of the work, 20% of the people give 80% of the money. It's the 80-20 rule. So he did this large research and just accumulated gobs and gobs and gobs of data. And in the end, after sifting through the data, he found out that the 80-20 rule was not true. He said it's more like 90-10. More like 90-10. And, and as he sifted through the data, he said he began to see a correlation between uh, that 10% or 15% or whatever you want to call it and the fact that they had what he decided to call something called intrinsic faith. Their faith was something that they owned deep within their soul, which changed them from the inside out, and they couldn't help but then manifested it as they lived. They would serve, they would give, they would put their life on the line, whatever it is. That's what their life was. And, and that... The other people, generally, they knew cognitively, they understood faith, but they didn't own it deep in their soul. They were able to say that they had faith in something, but they didn't necessarily live it out. It wasn't evidenced by the fruit necessarily in their lives. And so he began to argue that if, if, if you're going to have faith, the type of faith that you want to have is this faith that is then lived out in your life that there is a practical application and manifestation of this faith in your life. And in fact, he calls it the difference between mature faith and immature faith. It's a, it's a whole-bodied faith. Uh, he, he, he says it this way in one little report. He says, mature faith has burned the boats. They've arrived on the island. They've decided they're not going to go back, and they burn their boats. It, it's, it's what... Paul says, again in Philippians chapter 2, 
when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a person who understands that there's a world outside of them and that they are living for it, that God has called them to live for it. Immature faith has a tremendous susceptibility, however, to false gods, especially the false god of self. The false god of self. Now, this is not meant to discourage us, but meant to point us, as Paul does in Romans 12, to the one place we find genuine faith and power, and that is Christ on the cross. God did what the law could not do, weakened by our flesh, by sending Jesus to die on the cross and be raised from the dead. And, and really, think about this. The truth is, we're all intrinsic about something, aren't we? Even if you don't know Jesus, you have an intrinsic faith and, and an intrinsic pursuit of something in your life. It's probably a false god of some sort. We're all intrinsic about something. What are we going to be intrinsic about? Novelist David Foster Wallace says this, we are all dying to give ourselves away to something. We are all dying to give ourselves away to something. Um, think about this as we wrap up. Uh, the historian and author Ben Sass writes this, Not everyone will attend Harvard, but all of us can read like a Harvard student and a Harvard graduate. You ever think about that? We won't all go to Harvard. I don't even know if there's anybody in here who went to Harvard. We won't all go there, but we can certainly read like a Harvard graduate or a Harvard student. Nothing's stopping us from doing that, especially now with the internet, okay? In the same vein, our lead pastor, Tyler Johnson, says this, though not everyone will be an elder or a deacon at Redemption Church, all followers of Jesus should seek to live the gospel-centered life that qualifies them for eldership or deacon service because that's intrinsic mature faith. That's the power of the resurrection. Let's pray together and uh, we're going to sing a couple more songs and take communion together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we thank you for how the spirit moved in Paul's life to write these words and to teach us these great things about your gospel, the gospel of Jesus. And so God, we pray that um, we would be filled with this kind of faith, that we would understand that that having a faith like this is going to be a journey and there's going to be many ups and downs and that we are going to need to lean into your spirit and your word and your community to be able to do this. So I pray that uh, we would be called to do that and you would equip us through that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh,